Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Have you ever wondered how William Shakespeare, a man with limited education and experience, could have written plays that are filled with higher learning and reflect an enormous range of life experiences? If so, you're not alone. Many great minds have. Michael Blanding's latest book, North by Shakespeare, a rogue scholar's quest for the truth behind the Bard's work, proposes a likely answer to the authorship question. It's published by Hachette Books and brings Michael Blanding, whose previous books include The Map Thief, which was a New York Times bestseller, and an NPR Book of the Year to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Well, this is fascinating. Haven't a number of prominent thinkers questioned whether Shakespeare actually wrote all of his plays, including Sigmund Freud, Helen Keller, Henry James, Mark Twain? Uh, that's a wide range of people. Uh, were they all concerned about similar things? Yeah, it's really a long list when you look into it. And the doubts about Shakespeare really started uh, about 150 years ago in the 19th century when people started looking really seriously at the plays and analyzing them and then looking at the very sparse biography of William Shakespeare, at least what we know about it, and seeing that things didn't didn't quite match up. And uh, that really started the authorship question. And as you say, uh, some very, very prominent people uh, over the years have, have explored this question and tried to uh, come up with an answer. Henry James wrote, that the divine William is the biggest and most successful fraud ever practiced on a patient world. <laughs> right. Mark Twain published a book called Is Shakespeare Dead in 1909? And he questioned how Shakespeare, quote, mastered the nuances of a lawyer, a courtier, and a soldier without experiencing those roles. But wasn't uh, Shakespeare's originality questioned even during his lifetime? Uh, a, a man named Robert Greene uh, in 1592? That's right. There were some some uh, comments that were uh, circulated at the time that called Shakespeare an upstart crow that beautified himself with others' feathers. And that's mm -hmm. a common way of referring to someone as a plagiarist or at least somebody who was sort of taking other people's work and, and making it into his own. And uh, the questions persisted, you know, uh, in the early 1600s, there was uh, a theater producer who said that uh, Titus Andronicus wasn't Shakespeare's, that he had actually uh, just taken another work and added a few flourishes to it. And, and so when you start looking back at the historical record, there are questions all along about how, how original Shakespeare may have been. But uh, the word plagiarism wasn't even a, in what coined during Shakespeare's life, was it? Or was it near the end anyway? Uh, was that, would that have been a problem for his contemporaries? Yeah, that's right. The word plagiarism didn't enter the English language until 1598, which was well into Shakespeare's career. Uh, so there wasn't the same kind of sense of, of copyright and sort of, you know, uh, taking someone's work and, and making it your own. Uh, in fact, uh, even uh, mainstream scholars uh, believe that Shakespeare took source plays or source uh, material for, for most of his plays and, and reworked it into uh, the plays that we know today. But at the same time, uh, there does seem to be at least some resentment among some of his contemporaries that maybe he was doing this too much or getting a little bit uh, too much credit for it. So there were sort of uh, differing opinions, even in during Shakespeare's time. Traditionally, haven't experts explained the gaps by citing Shakespeare's lost years between 1585 and 1592? 
Yeah, that's right. So, so Shakespeare, as we know, uh, came from Stratford upon Avon. He was the son of a glove maker and didn't attend university. He didn't attend the Inns of Courts like uh, uh, most uh, uh, playwrights did. But um, so that's raised these questions because in the plays, of course, you have uh, an intimate knowledge of court and the language of court. You have the language of soldiers at war and, and uh, diplomacy. And then you have all these references of travel in, in Italy that uh, just seem to rely on more than just books and, and other travelers' tales. And so a lot of the ways that uh, scholars have tried to square this circle is by cramming every experience that Shakespeare would have needed for the plays into this, uh, you know, uh, six to eight year period that we refer to as the lost years before he came to London. And there's been speculation. He was a lawyer. He was a soldier. He was a traveler. Maybe he even traveled to the Americas. And it just goes on and on to try to explain this gap. Fought in wars in Flanders, went to Italy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. Your book has three main characters. Shakespeare, of course, Sir Thomas North, who's a contemporary of Shakespeare's, and Dennis McCarthy, a freelance writer who had self-published a book on the subject of Shakespearean authorship called North of Shakespeare, a title similar to the one you view is here. Um, is uh, Dennis McCarthy the, the rogue scholar of your subtitle? Yes, yes. So Dennis published the book North of Shakespeare. I, I published the book North by Shakespeare. It's sort of uh, you know, a clever nod to, to his work. But um, Dennis is a really fascinating character. I met him about six years ago, and uh, he is a, a self-taught scholar. He's a college dropout and has no formal training in Shakespeare studies. But he is one of these polymaths that can kind of dive deep into whatever subject he's interested in. And previously, in fact, he taught himself about biology and evolution and published papers that were in scientific journals and wrote a book about the subject. So he's a really smart guy. And uh, about 15 years ago, he turned on to the authorship question. And originally, he wanted to see if he could determine who wrote this early version of Hamlet that scholars know about that was written uh, about a decade, a little over a decade earlier than Shakespeare's version. And they refer to it as the Ur Hamlet. And Dennis sort of followed a series of clues uh, in other works and, and uh, using uh, this computer research. And he determined that the author of that play was uh, this other writer, Sir Thomas North. And that's kind of what got him started on, on his theory that I follow in the book. Where can you even find this early version of Hamlet? Well, the, the version doesn't exist, uh, which is part of the problem, that we don't have any text from of the Ur Hamlet, but there are references to it as far back as 1589. And Shakespeare's Hamlet uh, wasn't written, you know, according to scholars, until uh, around 1600. So there's always been this question of how there could have been this reference to this play that didn't exist at the time, uh, you know, 11 years earlier. And... Uh, you know, it's, there's been various theories that maybe Shakespeare wrote an early version early in his career, but that just doesn't seem to make sense, you know, given the quality of the play and, and you know, that how it's sort of tied to his later experiences. And, and so others have, have believed that, that someone else wrote the play. And, and for Dennis uh, McCarthy, that person was this other writer, Sir Thomas North. Didn't uh, Dennis McCarthy uh, approach you at, uh, at a book event for the the, uh, the the map thief um, that, he kind of maneuvered 
the seating so that he could sit next to you. <laughs> That's right. He sort of seduced me. I, I gave a, a talk for uh, the MAPD, uh, as I say, about six years ago at a college in Pennsylvania and Dennis attended. And uh, because he'd written about science and, and uh, biology and, and looked at uh, uh, evolution from a geographical perspective, he approached me afterwards and we, we really hit it off. He start, we started talking about maps and science and, and we're having a good time. And he invited me out for drinks and we went to a local student bar, you know, blasting, you know, Bon Jovi and 80s classic rock as we were, uh, you know, drinking uh, these drinks out of plastic cups. And, and about two drinks in, he turns to me and says, I have this new theory about Shakespeare. Uh, would you like to take a look? And uh, at that point, I uh, first I started sort of slowly backing away and worried that, you know, this was some kind of crazy conspiracy theory about Shakespeare not writing the plays. But the more he started uh, telling me about it and sending me information about it, the more I, I really felt like this could solve some of these questions that have lingered for, for years, if not centuries. But unlike most of the previous doubters who claim that Francis Bacon or Edward de Vere, the, the Earl of Oxford, was the real author of Shakespeare's plays, others who argue that Shakespeare probably collaborated with other writers. You wrote, McCarthy believed that the Bard of Avon wrote every word attributed to him during his lifetime. So how did he explain all of the, the questions about Shakespeare? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a really neat theory that's sort of a middle ground between this kind of anti-Stratfordian heresy and the uh, you know, traditional view of, of Shakespeare as the sole author of the play. And what Shakespeare believes is essentially, I mean, sorry, what, what Dennis McCarthy believes is that essentially- We don't know what Shakespeare believes. <laughs> Unfortunately not. No, that would, that would solve everything. Uh, but what Dennis believes is that Shakespeare uh, wrote the plays him, himself, the version of the plays that we have today, but that he used these earlier source plays that were written by Thomas North for nearly every one of the plays. So for Macbeth, Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Henry V, you name it, that Thomas North had written these earlier versions of the plays over this 50 year period when uh, he was a courtier and he was sort of writing these versions to be performed uh, in court. And then at a certain point, uh, collaborated with Shakespeare, sold them to Shakespeare, and, and Shakespeare adapted them for the common stage. So it doesn't necessarily take away from Shakespeare as the author of the plays or even a genius who could sort of adapt these earlier works into the forms that we know today and that have been you know, pleasing audiences for 400 years. But it does uh, imply that he had some help and he had this earlier source material which could explain why he was able to write about uh, all of these topics that he had no personal experience in as far as we know. Sir Thomas North was uh, the son of uh, a, uh, an important man, and he was also a translator, a lawyer, a diplomat, and a writer. Lived from 1535 to 1604. So was he a contemporary of Shakespeare, slightly older? He was slightly older. He was uh, about 30 years older than Shakespeare. And Thomas North is best known today as the translator of this book called Plutarch's Lives. And that is a collection of Greek and Roman biographies that uh, he translated from this Roman writer, Plutarch. And we know this work today as the source of Shakespeare's Roman plays. And in fact, there's whole scenes from Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra and Coriolanus that are taken almost directly out of Thomas North's translation. 
in a way that Shakespeare did with no other writer that he used as a source. There were passages that um, were almost verbatim, just turned from prose into poetry. And so we've always known that Thomas North was a significant influence on Shakespeare, but most scholars have limited to just saying he, he used Thomas North's work for the Roman plays and that he was just using his prose work. But Dennis uh, has, has sort of expanded that outwards and, and uh, seen a much, much greater depth. Well, if I were writing a historical novel, wouldn't I just go to some source material from the time? And uh, if I wanted to be accurate, I would borrow ideas and, and um, perhaps whole scenes. But I would write it in my own language. Shakespeare's language right. is unique, isn't it? Yeah, so... Uh, Bill Bryson once said that Shakespeare was a, uh, a great teller of stories so long as someone else had told them first. <laughs> so we, we know that, that Shakespeare actually used source material for almost every one of his plays. There's just a couple that, that we don't have an original source for. But uh, traditional scholars look at uh, you know, Italian novellas or the English histories of Holinshed, for example, and, and believe that Shakespeare took these earlier works and then basically created plays from them. And, um, and in some cases, actually, they do have names of, of earlier plays that they believe Shakespeare adapted as well. But what Dennis is saying is that Shakespeare had these earlier plays for every single one of the plays almost, and, and that uh, they were all written by the same person, Thomas Norris. So it's a, it's a slightly different um, uh, theory, but it's not completely, completely out there once you start looking into it. Well, what was Shakespeare doing? Was uh, He was an actor. Was he also producing plays? Uh, would he have written them down for the other actors? Yeah, so we know that Shakespeare was an actor and that he was a, um, a part owner in this company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, which later became the King's Men. And he was a, uh, also an, a part owner of the Globe Theater. And so he was certainly uh, in the theater world. Uh, and, and then we have his name on certain plays. But we don't have any contemporaries who refer to him as, as a writer. We don't have any books that were left in his will. You know, there's all these sort of gaps between Shakespeare, the actor and theater producer, and Shakespeare, the, the writer. And so where, where Dennis fills in those gaps is saying that Shakespeare had this company and, and he took these plays by, by Thomas North and maybe other writers as well and was a master at adapting them for the stage and, and putting them on. And, and so uh, he was certainly part of the theater, but not necessarily the sole author of the plays the way we think about it today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guest today is Michael Blanding. Uh, his latest book, North by Shakespeare, A Rogue Scholar's Quest for the Truth Behind the Bard's Work, published by Hachette. Uh, now, how much do we know about North's life and his writings? Did, did he, like Shakespeare, write both plays and poetry? So what we know about North's writings are um, four main works. Uh, he wrote in early uh, book called The Dial of Princes, which is this sort of uh, advice to kings and, and nobles about how to live their lives. And he, then he wrote a book of animal fables uh, set in Italy called The Moral Philosophy of Doni. And then he wrote Plutarch's Lives and then another book that was called Nepo's Lives that was sort of like a, a uh, addendum to Plutarch's Lives with more lives uh, included in it. And uh, so all of his books were sort of um, these didactic 
books about uh, kind of how to live your life and in particular how to rule. He was really obsessed with this idea of what made a good ruler and, uh, you know, what you could do to to be, uh, you know, a good humanist um, uh, ruler for your subjects. Well, he and, lived during uh, yeah. the time of three complicated British rulers, Henry VIII, Mary and Elizabeth. That's exactly right. And and this was a time when people were, were obsessed with this idea of, uh, you know, what did make a good ruler. And they, they could see many examples of bad rulers in Henry VIII and, and you know, Mary, uh, Bloody Mary uh, in their persecutions of, of uh, their subjects. And uh, and then, you know, arguably they saw a, a very good one in, in Elizabeth who really, you know, ushered in this this golden age, although she was not without her faults. And so this was, you know, uh, a subject that was really on the mind of courtiers and, and writers at the time. And, and of course, it infuses Shakespeare's plays that, you know, not just the English histories, but Macbeth and Hamlet and King Lear, they're all about, you know, what makes a good king or a bad king. And, and so it, it, in, in that sense, too, it makes sense that, that uh, it would be drawn upon works like this. Is there hard evidence that North's plays ever existed? Were they, were they published at the time? No. So, so McCarthy speculates the existence of, of McCarthy's, uh, I'm sorry, McCarthy speculates the existence of Norse plays. It's hard to keep all these names straight. Mm. And in fact, that's, that's the biggest criticism that has been uh, leveled against him and his theories that, uh, you know, if Thomas North wrote these plays, well, where are they? You know, why don't they exist today? And Dennis's answer to that question is that uh, almost no manuscript plays survive from the time that uh, the only plays that, that survive are ones that were printed. And of the 3,000 or so plays that we know of from the period, only about 10% uh, of them do we have today, and only another 10% do we even know their names of or know a little bit about their plots. So in some ways, it would be more surprising if, if the plays did survive than if they didn't. But of course, it, it uh, requires a, a big leap of faith to go from saying that Shakespeare just used books like Plutarch's Lives to use an actual play written by Thomas North. And that's something that a lot of scholars have, have a lot of trouble uh, going with uh, Dennis on that, on that leap. You point out that no Shakespeare manuscripts exist either. That's right. Yeah. So uh, we have one one play that may have uh, a few lines of Shakespeare's hand, although that's been that's been debated. But uh, no, we don't have manuscripts of, of any of Shakespeare's plays. And in fact, uh, over half of them were not even printed until after his death. And were it not for the first folio, we may not even have plays like uh, Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra today. Hasn't McCarthy concluded that correspondence between Shakespeare and North is indisputable? What evidence does he base that on? Yeah, so he has done a few things that uh, have traced uh, the plays to Thomas North's life and, and works. And the, the biggest uh, evidence that he has amassed has been uh, using this really clever computerized technique of uh, relying on plagiarism software. And it's the same kind of software that uh, a professor would use to find that a student was cheating on a paper, for example. But he has applied the entire text of Shakespeare's plays, the entire uh, text of Thomas Norris' works. And in doing so, he has found all of these passages, literally thousands of phrases that have been uh, uh, in common between uh, both of these writers. And moreover, that these phrases occur in certain passages that seem to express the same ideas, sometimes even have the same characters or same plot lines. 
And, uh, you know, when you look at it statistically, you know, some of these phrases are eight words long and, and it's just, uh, you know, and, and occur with no other writer in English. And when you look at it statistically, it's, it's just um, incredibly unlikely that Shakespeare wouldn't have been using uh, Thomas North as, as a source. And so at least there's some connection between Shakespeare and North that scholars have not known about before. But, uh, but you, Dennis you then sort of takes it further than that, yeah. You include uh, quite a few of uh, the comparisons, and I don't know. There's uh, you got to stretch a bit uh, if uh, Shakespeare says, um, uh, well, if North says uh, the little world of our body, and Shakespeare says uh, his little world of man, mm. is that really a borrowing, or didn't people speak in the same way at the time? Well, Dennis has done two things to um, to sort of more uh, more tightly tie these these uh, writers together. One is he has taken these phrases and then cross references them with a database called Ebo, the Early English Books Online, which is a database of all printed uh, works of the period. And in many cases, he's found that only Shakespeare and only Thomas North uh, used uh, some of these phrases. And as I say, some of these phrases are quite long. But the other thing I, I think which is more impressive is that he's been able to show that many of these phrases occur in passages expressing similar ideas. Mm -hmm. So he will find, for example, a phrase uh, in Shakespeare's Richard II, uh, dissolve the bands of life, which is this very rare phrase that only two or three other writers have used. But then he's using that phrase in this passage where he's talking about grief and talking about how grief is like seeing things through water through which everything is distorted. And so it's a very specific image and it's a very uh, specific um, metaphor that the same passage in Thomas North's book, Nepo's Lives is actually using the, the exact same image and the exact same metaphor uh, at the same time he's using that phrase. And so it goes beyond just, uh, just a couple of phrases that may have been in circulation at the time. And Dennis is able to do this for, for literally hundreds of passages between the plays. And, and that's what really uh, made it more compelling to me and said, OK, maybe he's onto something here that nobody has uh, found before. Have any manuscripts been discovered in, in the British Library? Yeah. So that's the other thing that uh, Dennis has done is as he started on this research, he started looking for uh, anything that might prove that uh, Shakespeare had, uh, I'm sorry, that Thomas North had access to writings that Shakespeare wouldn't have had. And in searching for it, he actually found a manuscript that was written by Thomas North's cousin, George North, that was uh, never printed during uh, his lifetime and uh, would have been at the North ancestral home of Kirtling Hall at the same time Thomas was there. And using this plagiarism software, he was able to tie this manuscript to 11 of Shakespeare's plays, including uh, Macbeth and uh, King Lear and, and uh, Richard III. And some of the passages are passages that, um, that scholars have wondered all along, where could uh, Shakespeare have gotten these specific details and images, and yet they're there in that unpublished manuscript. And Dennis wrote a book about that. And I actually published an article in the New York Times uh, about three years ago 
under the headline, Plagiarism Software Reveals New Source for Shakespeare's Plays. And, and it was very well received by scholars. A number of uh, the director of the Folger Library and various other scholars were very impressed by it and really thought, you know, Dennis had found this new source that no one had ever known before. And it was only until Dennis said, well, and I believe that, you know, Shakespeare never used this source, that it was actually Thomas North, that suddenly people started, you know, wanting nothing to do with them again. But um, it's that kind of thing that um, seems to take this beyond just mere coincidence that Dennis was looking for this manuscript and, and lo and behold, he found it in, in the British Library in a place that nobody else had, had ever been looking before. Was his first book just dismissed when it was published in 2011? What about, and then, wasn't there a second book that he wrote with June Schluter, who's a Shakespeare scholar? Did yes, that give him any more credibility? Yeah, it did. It certainly did with me. Um, June Schluter is a uh, really fabulous woman. She was a former editor of the Shakespeare Bulletin, which is a peer-reviewed journal. She's a professor emerita at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. And Dennis approached her uh, early on in his research with something that he had discovered with the play Titus Andronicus that was very similar to something that, that June was working on. And um, he told her his theories. And, and unlike most scholars, she was very interested in it and, and of course didn't believe it at first and thought that, you know, he was really kind of uh, uh, barking up the wrong tree. But the more she looked at it, the more she started to be persuaded and eventually uh, started uh, writing articles and books with him. And they've published two books and, and several peer-reviewed articles now about this theory about Shakespeare borrowing from earlier plays by, by Thomas North. And in my book, I really... Um, you know, June really becomes in some ways sort of the uh, uh, moral center of my book where uh, Dennis is, is a very interesting character. He's very, uh, uh, he's very brash in, in some of the ways that he goes about uh, explaining his theories and, and uh, he's uh, sometimes his enthusiasm gets the better of him. And, and June is this, you know, very sober scholar who uh, is uh, very methodical and, and, uh, and mild mannered, but, but clever. And, and, and the two of them together are quite an odd couple that, that were really fun to profile in my book. Haven't most scholars uh, claimed that historical chronicles by Hollinshead provided some of Shakespeare's material, for example, drawing upon Hollinshead's chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland as sort of material, source of material for Macbeth. Um, had uh, North written about uh, that as well? Yeah, so the thing that, uh, that Dennis is able to do is, um, so he, he started with the plagiarism software, but then quickly he started looking at Thomas North's life and um, other, uh, other allusions by other writers and other allusions in the plays to events that may have been occurring in Thomas North's life at the time. And uh, many of them, he uh, believes actually refer to incidents in the life of North's patron, this man named uh, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, who is this mm -hmm. longtime suitor to Queen Elizabeth. And uh, so if you look at the plays through, through this lens, you start seeing uh, how they might have fit into Thomas North's life in certain years. And then he matched up source material like Hollinshed's Chronicles that were written at certain years and, and how North might have used those in the plays as well. And so for each one of the plays, uh, Dennis is able to show how there's certain verbal parallels in common, how they rely on sources that Thomas North would have had at the time, and how they might relate to certain political or personal mm -hmm. uh, issues going on in, in North's life or in the life of his patron. And it's a really remarkable chronology when, when he's able to, to put it together like that. And that's the narrative that I follow in my book. 
Early in your book, you describe an event in Queen Elizabeth's life and link it to a scene in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. So and that links this, to, to North as well? Yes, there was this wonderful uh, party that took place in, in England in 1575 uh, at this castle of Kenilworth. And that was the castle owned by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. And he threw this 19-day festival that was essentially designed in order to get Queen Elizabeth to fall in love and marry him. And he pulled out all the stops. He had all of these entertainments with all of these actors and people dressed in, you know, forest garb and things. Just, you know, very similar to Midsummer Night's Dream in in the way it's depicted today. And there's one scene in particular that... uh, it's this elaborate water pageant with this mermaid and this dolphin and, and uh, these gods and goddesses. And scholars have long tied that to, the, um, to a scene in A Midsummer Night's Dream and, and uh, have wondered how Shakespeare could have witnessed this event because he was only 10 years old at the time. And they think, oh, maybe he, he you know, came from Stratford or something and you know, with his father and saw this. But, but Thomas North would have been there with, along with his brother, who was really uh, Lester's best friend. And he would have been able to see this scene and, and, uh, and incorporate it into uh, a play, as, as Dennis believes, that was then later turned into A Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and that's just one example of these kind of uh, events in his life that, uh, that uh, seem to be reflected to the, in the plays in an uncanny degree. For example, didn't some of Shakespeare's plot lines seem to come straight out of North's life? They see things in As You Like It and The Tempest. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, the Tempest is concerned with this uh, very kind of bookish uh, lord who's deposed and exiled and, and uh, by his, his brother and sort of his revenge against his brother. And that was really the story of Thomas North's life. He was uh, actually sort of um, disowned by his family and by his brother late in life and, and ended up in poverty and, and, you know, in much the same way that Prospero, this bookish uh, wizard, you know, was, was uh, left on this Island. Thomas North, this very bookish uh, gentleman was sort of uh, isolated from his family. And, um, uh, you know, King Lear, uh, which there is this uh, uh, king who's deposed and in poverty again, sort of seems to relate to Thomas North's uh, poverty and, um, and as you like it, uh, actually, which again, deals with this theme of this uh, uh, king deposed by his brother, also has this, uh, this woman, Rosalind, who's the main character, and uh, being wooed by this, this poet. And uh, some scholars have seen uh, that as a reference to uh, Edmund Spencer, who wrote a poem about this other woman named Rosalind. And they've seen that as a, uh, a reference to Thomas North's daughter, who was uh, Elizabeth North, and, and that Rosalind was actually an anagram for, for Eliza Nord, which is the French, uh, French uh, translation of North. And so you see, you know, this kind of web of intersections and influences and coincidences that are, are in the plays and seem to relate to Thomas North's life. And, and, you know, any one of them you could discount as just coincidence. But when you see them over and over like this, they really seem to add up to something uh, pretty extraordinary. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake 
Michael Blanding, whose latest book is North by Shakespeare, A Rogue Scholar's Quest for the Truth Behind the Bard's Work, published by Hachette. Um, I asked you earlier, I don't think we ever got an answer to it. Do we know whether North wrote poetry? Um, no, the works that we have of Thomas North are all his translations, his prose translations. Mm -hmm. But uh, Dennis has actually started to do some work since uh, I published my book and, and has actually found some uh, of those translations may have actually been written in blank verse, which is what Shakespeare used to write his plays. And so that's something that he's working on now and, and trying to, to puzzle out. And, and uh, it seems like maybe uh, there's some poetry hidden in the prose, but, uh, but uh, that's something that he's still working on. Do we do we know uh, how many plays North actually wrote, and whether Shakespeare produced any of them with his with his theater company? Yeah. So what Dennis believes actually is that North wrote these plays for uh, for the Earl of Leicester, and had his own theater company called Leicester's Men. And there are some records of the plays that were produced by Leicester's Men. And um, some of them even have um, very similar names or seem to have similar um, there's some sort of references that um, to plot lines in the plays that seem to relate to Shakespeare's plays. Uh, for example, in 1570, let's see if I'm going to get this right. In 1572, there was a play called Philemon and Philicina that was thought to be an early version of Two Gentlemen of Verona, which was this mm -hmm. Italian comedy. And that would have been written right after... North came uh, back from a, a trip to Italy and seems to have a lot of verbal parallels with the book that he published uh, based on his Italian journey, The Moral Philosophy of Doni. And there was another play uh, enacted by Lester's Men in 1574 called Phoenicia, which some people see as an early version of Much Ado About Nothing, which again is one of these Italian comedies. And so that's the kind of research that Dennis has done in the absence of actually having these plays and being able to say, yes, Shakespeare adapted them. He's able to show that these source plays uh, by uh, Lester's men may have actually been written by North and, and, and used um, in, in uh, connection with his life at the time. And would they have been sold to Shakespeare when Shakespeare was uh, looking for material? That's Dennis's belief that there uh, was a point in Norse life where he was disowned by his brother and his father, and he was impoverished and may have seen selling these plays as a way to relieve his, his poverty. And as a gentleman, he wouldn't have really been someone who would want to have get credit for plays, which was seen as a real kind of low art at the time, he would have seen his legacy as his translations. And uh, that's what he really would have seen as, as the source of his own fame. And so it is conceivable that he could have sold these plays to Shakespeare and Shakespeare could have produced them under his own name and adapted them as, as he saw fit into the, into the works that we know today. Do we know whether it was common practice then to take source material, adapt it, make it your own, putting your name on it, without giving any credit to the original author? Yeah, it really was. I mean, this is something that writers then were doing all the time. And in fact, scholars today are just starting to piece out how there may have been a number of writers on many of Shakespeare's plays that some of them he may have written with uh, Christopher Marlowe or Thomas Kidd or Thomas Nash. And it seems every year there's a new person that scholars want to add and, and you know, attribute to, to sections of, of uh 
Shakespeare's plays. And of course, none of these people were given credit at the time because when the plays were published, they only had Shakespeare's name on it. And so it really does give some credence to this idea that Thomas North could have been this sort of ghostwriter that, uh, you know, was responsible for some of the passages and characters and soliloquies in the plays and that, that Shakespeare just adapted them and put his name on it, that it was something that was actually done at the time. What about Shakespeare's life? Do we see any of his experiences uh, in, in Stratford in the plays? Well, that's just the thing is people have tried very hard to try to relate Shakespeare's life to the plays. And in fact, uh, Stephen Greenblatt uh, wrote this book, The Will in the World, which is a, a really admirable attempt to try to uh, figure out how Shakespeare's ex life experiences may have uh, figured into the plays. But just there's just so much of it that's speculation and that doesn't seem to really fit very well. And you know, for example, Shakespeare's uh, son uh, Hamnet died, and and people think that that may have led to Shakespeare writing Hamlet, which is really consumed mm -hmm. with death. But aside from from that, you know, the similarity of the name and the similarity of the theme of death, there's really nothing in Hamlet about a child dying or or anything like that. And so it's these kind of um, these kind of references that people have really come up short on. And Shakespeare, of course, didn't have any brother that he had a feud with. He had, uh, you know, a number of younger siblings, but but none of them that would have uh, explained why so many of the plays are concerned with this rivalry between brothers and As You Like It and The Tempest and the English histories. And, and it just goes on and on that um, there really is, is very little evidence at all to um, reflect Shakespeare's life in, in the plays. And and unlike most authors, which we do see these autobiographical traces, uh, you know, no matter what their material is. Well, McCarthy describes uh, Thomas North as one of the most autobiographical writers there is. He was the son of Edward North, a prominent courtier who rose in stature and wealth during the reigns of Henry VIII, Mary and Elizabeth. Um, and, and as you pointed out, he kept a detailed journal during his travels with his father uh, enjoyed a, a privileged view of aristocracy. So um, how many, uh, how much of his life is actually winds up in Shakespeare's plays? Uh, has any, has uh, McCarthy been able to uh, come up with a number? You know, McCarthy has found references to Thomas Smith's life in almost every one of the plays. And some of them are more compelling than others. I have to say, as a journalist writing about it, some of them are more of a stretch when you, when you look at them. But some of them are um, just really dead on. For example, as you say, Thomas North took this trip to Italy early on in his life, and he kept a journal of his experience that Dennis was able to find in manuscript in, in uh, a library in England. And it is this trip that he took to Rome during the reign of Queen Mary, who was trying to reconcile England with the Pope. After Henry VIII sort of famously split with the Pope in order to marry uh, Anne Boleyn, uh, Queen Mary, who was Catholic, tried to reconcile the, the kingdom. And there are all of these references that Dennis is able to find in the journal to the play Henry VIII, which deals with this divorce of Henry VIII from, uh, from Catherine of Aragon and his marriage to Anne Boleyn, you know, the exact same events that preceded this journey that Thomas North was taking. But even more remarkably, he's able to find these references to the play The Winter's Tale, which also deals with this uh, king who uh, accuses his wife of infidelity and she ends up dying. And at the very end of the play, there is this very dramatic scene in which she is 
turned into a statue and she comes alive 15 years later after she died and from this statue. And the statue is supposedly made by this Italian artist named Giulio Romano. And on that trip that Thomas North took, he actually went to the town of Mantua in Italy in which there were the, all of these uh, lifelike wax statues in this church, including some that you know, were of noble women, just like uh, this, this queen Hermione in the play. And that same day, he went to a palace in which there were these frescoes by the artist Giulio Romano, the same artist who's mentioned in the play as the creator of these statues. And there's all these frescoes on the wall with Greek gods and goddesses. And there's these scenes in The Winter's Tale with Greek god goddesses. And it goes on and on. And all of these experiences that were in Thomas North's journal uh, appear in those two plays, Henry VIII and The Winter's Tale, which would have been written right around the time that uh, that was the foremost issue in, in England. And so when you start looking at it like that, it just becomes hard to believe that it was just coincidence. And it really, um, really becomes quite, uh, quite fascinating, quite impressive that uh, perhaps uh, Dennis is onto something here. Okay, I'm convinced. But uh, <laughs> Shakespeare was a business-minded theater man. But but no matter what, didn't he have a way with words? Are we saying that he that he uh, didn't actually write the, those incredible speeches and poems? There's certainly people who would say that. There's certainly um, uh, some theories out there that it was the Earl of Oxford or someone else, and Shakespeare was just a front man and may have been illiterate. Uh, and, and it was actually you know the Earl of Oxford who wrote the plays. But Dennis really isn't saying that. He's saying that uh, Shakespeare may have been a brilliant writer in his own right, but it was as an adapter of plays and not as an author. And the example that he uses uh, is um, Peter Jackson adapting J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. You have this very literary book of, written by J.R.R. Tolkien with the history of elves and, and dwarves and, and everything. And there's some great scenes in there, but it's not necessarily a page turner. And then you have these, you know, amazing films that have been produced by Peter Jackson, which, you know, have, have won all these awards and, and, you know, are thrilling to audiences. And it may have been some, something like that kind of, kind of relationship where, uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote these masterpiece books and Peter Jackson wrote these, uh, made these masterpiece movies that are both very different, but uh, are also uh, related to one another. And, and, uh, and they both deserve credit for the genius that they put into the work. Yeah, writers have always relied on sources for their material. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, you think of today, the, you know, the, the works that, that we watch today, which are, you know, movies and, and Netflix streaming series, um, they're all the result of collaborations. They're adapted from, from previous works. You've got, uh, you know, Marvel movies that are adapted from comic books, or you have, uh, you know, this writer's room of people that are all collaborating together that very, very seldom is it just one person who, you know, creates this, uh, this genius work that really lasts, uh, through, you know, through the ages that a lot of things are the results of, of adaptation and collaboration. And, and uh, so it, it, it wouldn't be too surprising to learn that Shakespeare's plays were, were the same. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Michael Blanding, whose latest book is North by Shakespeare, a rogue scholar's quest for the truth behind the Bard's work, published by Hachette. Your book lays out the intrigues of the Tudor court, the, the rivalries of the English of English Renaissance theater. Um 
But um, I, I suspect that no matter what and how convincing McCarthy's arguments and yours may be, we'll never really be able to settle <laughs> the, the Shakespeare authorship question. <laughs> Well, I tried to make the book really fun to read. You know, I think sometimes people see Shakespeare and they get very intimidated or think it's going to be very uh, boring. And, and I really wanted to kind of make this, this idea come alive so that whether or not people really bought into this theory, they would have a good time exploring it with me. Mm. And so I convinced Dennis to travel with me and we went through on a trip to England and we went on another trip to Italy and uh, just spent the time exploring and almost like literary detectives going to a lot of the uh, places where Thomas North lived and traveled. And uh, I tried to recreate some of these events like the Kenilworth Festival or, or like these uh, amazing pageants or diplomatic missions or wars in, in uh, Ireland and, and other places and really try to make it into a narrative that would be Kind of thrilling for the reader and, and have them come along with me on this journey and, and at the end make up their own mind about it. I try not to uh, make up my own mind one way or the other. I try to maintain my skepticism to the end and, and lay out the evidence and, and let the reader make up their mind. And, and uh, some of my readers have, have been completely convinced and some of them have been very skeptical and I, it makes me feel like I did it just about right. Did you have to bone up on your Shakespeare in order to write this book? Yes, I did. I mean, I'm an investigative That's not reporter. That's a painful experience, is it? <laughs> expert myself. Uh, but I love Shakespeare, and I've always uh, enjoyed watching the plays in the summer and, and reading the plays and seeing movies. And But I really went and uh, reread, I think I'm up to 27 of the 38 plays now that I've, that I've reread. I haven't quite quite read all the, you know, more obscure ones like Trollius and Cressida or Time out of Athens, but I read the major ones and, and I've watched productions of them. And, and uh, I did a real deep dive into Elizabethan history, which is just, uh, you know, you talk about page turners. I mean, what a fascinating era that was and the personalities involved. And so I really wanted to make myself an expert so that I could really hold my head up high. And, and uh, for the most part, uh, knock on wood, nobody's, uh, nobody's found any glaring errors yet. So uh, for that, I'm grateful. Did you discover new favorite plays that you may have overlooked in the past? Yeah, I had actually never seen or read As You Like It before. And uh, that was a play that was a real surprise to me. And uh, I really fell in love with the character of Rosalind, who's the heroine at the center of that tale. And she is just, uh, she holds her own with everyone in the play. She's the wittiest character, one of the wittiest characters in, in Shakespeare. But at the same time, she's uh, just really delightful and has been seen as the model for, you know, later day heroines like uh, Joe March and Little Women and, and uh, Elizabeth Bennett and Pride and Prejudice. And um, I just fell in love with her character and, and reading that play and watching productions of it was a, was a real pleasure. And so as a writer, that's just, you know, that's always what I look for in, in working on a topic is, is that I discover something new and I discover something that uh, I didn't know about before. And, and I, have, I have to say, As You Like It is now my favorite Shakespeare play and I'd never seen it before. Now, Shakespeare wrote some, created some pretty incredible female characters. Uh, That's can't right. Call him a I, sexist. He, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say that, um, you know, people have said that that there's no heroes in Shakespeare, only heroines. And, and I mm -hmm. think that's really true that you, you've got so many great female characters, whether it's uh, Beatrice or Rosalind or Portia and Marchie de Venice and uh, Cleopatra. And, um, 
and of course, Thomas North was also surrounded by strong women in his life as, as well. So uh, there's, there's another connection there. Now, how do you see this book fitting in with your previous books? Because they're all so different. The, the first, the one from 2010 was The Coke Machine, The Dirty Truth Behind the World's Favorite Soft Drink. And then you had that major bestseller, The Map mm -hmm. Thief, the gripping story of an esteemed rare map dealer who made millions stealing priceless maps. And now... Um, a rogue scholar who, uh, who right. uh, do, do they have anything in common? From Coke to maps to Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the books that I really like to read and also the ones that I like to write are ones that take a kind of modern day story and weave that together with a historical story. And I really enjoyed doing that with The Map Thief, which is the story of this, a nonfiction story of this thief of rare maps who uh, went into libraries and was ripping maps out of, out of books and selling them. And uh, I wrote about that true crime story, but then I also wrote about the history of these explorers and map makers and cartographers who made these maps. And I found myself just as compelled by those stories as I was by the modern story. And so for this one, I sort of doubled down on that. And I wrote this, you know, modern story of Dennis McCarthy uh, and his attempts to try to get anyone to listen to him and anyone to believe his theories about, about Shakespeare. But then I also went back in time and I really tried to recreate the life of, of Elizabethan England and the story of Thomas North and to some extent, the story of Shakespeare and, and trying to weave all those stories together in a way that hopefully... Uh, transports the reader and makes them feel like they're getting, you know, two stories for the price of one. And, and that's really, I think, if there's any common thread, I would, I would draw through all my books. That, that's, that's it. Well, he, uh, McCarthy's book was called uh, North of Shakespeare. Uh, it was self-published. Was that because yes. no publishers wanted it? Is it how well written is it? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's he's actually a funny because... You said he's a self-taught college dropout. That doesn't mean that he isn't brilliant. Uh, he's no, also he's... called the Steve Jobs of the Shakespeare community. Right, right. That's what June calls him, the Steve Jobs mm -hmm. of the Shakespeare community. You know, Steve Jobs is also famously self-taught. Uh, Dennis published that book, North of Shakespeare, in uh, 2011, so about 10 years ago. And it was early on in his research. And he was terrified that someone else was going to stumble upon this connection, that they were going to use the same computer software he did and find this connection to Thomas North. And so he rushed this book into print just so he could claim uh, the rights to this theory, you know, just like Darwin, uh, you know, rushed uh, the origin of species into print so that, you know, Alfred Wallace couldn't, couldn't claim. And, and we don't, you know, uh, many people don't know who Alfred Wallace is today. And um, it, what's unfortunate, however, is that, is that the book, you know, it, it's not that it was badly written, but it was um, kind of a cobbled together from a lot of the scholarship that he'd done and he hadn't sort of completely worked out his theory yet. And so when it came out, it actually earned him a lot of criticism from the scholarly community and, and people, you know, really not taking him seriously. And since then working with June Schluter and, and really developing his own skills over the past decade, he's become a much better writer and a much better scholar. And the work that he's putting out today on his website, which I should give a plug for SirThomasNorth.com, is, uh, is really of much higher quality and, and, uh, uh, he regrets in some ways publishing that book so early and kind of, you know, getting this reputation that, that he had back then because he's really uh, firmed it up now. But he's uh, in some ways a very, uh, very, very enthusiastic and very excited uh, uh, person about his research and, and almost couldn't hold himself back from putting it out there before it was quite, uh, quite finished. Do you know if he's come up with anything new since your book was published? 
Yeah. So one of the things that I look at in, in the, at the end of my book is actually some research that I discovered in the library um, as I was looking into this, you know, as a writer, I wanted to make sure I was doing my own research and I was really checking his um, work. And there's a copy of one of Thomas Norris' books called The Dial of Princes that has Thomas Norris' own handwriting and marginalia in it. And I was able to uh, find some connections in that book to some of the plays that really just kind of jumped out at me and made me wonder, you know, was I just seeing what I wanted to see based on Dennis's theory? Um, one of them, for example, is the uh, famous stage direction in The Winter's Tale, Exit Pursued by a Bear, that seems to be this passage uh, that comes straight out of uh, The Dial of Princes. But anyway, uh, since I have um, uh, found that and I, I took copies of all the pages and I sent them to Dennis and he has just done wonders with them uh, since my book was published. And he has been finding all kinds of new connections with Taming of the Shrew and uh, Macbeth and these other plays that has really um, been remarkable. And so, you know, even though my book just came out, his research has already uh, gone far beyond it. And, and I'm really excited to see what he what he continues to come up with. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, it's a, a fascinating theory. I, I, I buy it. Um, <laughs> well, Michael I'm so glad that, that, uh, that you stand convinced. I'm not well, sure it's I'm completely convincing. convinced, but there's something there. There's definitely something there. I'll say yeah. that much for sure. Michael Blanding's book is North by Shakespeare, A Rogue Scholar's Quest for the Truth Behind the Bard's Work. It's published by Hachette. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to this program, you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. You probably know by now that WBAI is ex continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we're asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to please go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentaries or or just about a topic that you hadn't thought about in much depth before. Uh, do it for us, do it for WBAI, do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And remember, WBAI is supported 100% by its audience. We don't take money from foundations or we don't run ads, nothing like that. One very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member of the station, or what we call a BAI buddy, but... However you choose to donate, the important thing is to take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going to the website give2wbai.org. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Tokyo at Large. From all of us at the show, thanks. And we hope you can join us again for tomorrow's show when industrial hygienist and regular contributor to the show, Monona Russell, will discuss the mayor's plan to reopen the city to full capacity on July 1st. We'll see you then.